The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Confronting the Challenges of Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Lung Disease, Expert Strategies for Reducing Diagnostic Delays and Improving Adherence to Guideline-Based Treatment. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash MNQ 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, welcome to Confronting the Challenges of Non-Tuberculous Mycobacterial Lung Disease, Expert Strategies for Reducing Diagnostic Delays and Improving Adherence to Guideline-Based Therapy. It is a pleasure to be here with my uh, good friend and guest, Dr. Julie Philly from University of Texas Tyler, who will be uh, giving the first part of the talk, and I'll be giving the second part of the talk, and hopefully we'll go back and forth uh, in this peer view uh, broadcast. Dr. Julie Philly is professor of medicine. She's department of uh, from the Department of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at uh, University of Texas Tyler in Tyler, Texas. A good friend and a renowned expert in this area. So Julie, thank you for being with us and I'm gonna let you take it away. Thanks a lot, Dr. Winthrop. It's always fun to present with you. We've been friends and colleagues for a long time. And welcome everyone. We'll go through these slides fairly quickly. We don't have a lot of time together and would love to be able to answer questions if we can. So I'm going to talk about identifying NTM and just the importance of having a low index of suspicion. Um, I mean, rather a high index of suspicion uh, for this disease in the right patient population and making the prompt diagnosis. I want to point out that there are a lot of species now of NTM or non-tuberculous mycobacteria, over 200 in fact, and identifying more every day. The good news is that the majority of these do not cause disease in the normal immunocompetent hosts. But I, we wanted to point out the major ones in the United States. More than 80% of what we see is MAC, uh, followed by M. Kansasii and abscessus. And we've broken these out just for your information on slow growers versus rapid growers. The majority of what we see uh, in terms of infection, especially again in the immunocompetent patient, is lung disease. And we see a lot of MAC, but don't forget there are others as well. Why is this important? Well, we are understanding more and more about these patients and what happens to these types of patients over time. We also understand that the, making the diagnosis can be complicated. These are often people that look pretty healthy. They may be very physically active and may just have insidious kind of cough-like symptoms that may prompt multiple rounds of antibiotics. And this can go on for years, in fact, before someone's astute enough to say, hey, maybe I need to investigate what's going on, because this can really cause lung destruction and severe symptoms in the right, uh, in the right patient groups. So diagnosis is, is really, you need to have this index of suspicion to think about it and to make the diagnosis with appropriate sputum cultures, chest imaging combined with their symptoms. We understand that a delayed diagnosis can lead to problems. And specifically, it can lead to worsening lung function, uh, worsening symptoms, decreased quality of life. And we understand now, too, that over time, if left untreated, many of these patients' radiographs go on to progress. We also understand that this is common. A lot of people are living in the United States with NTM lung disease, and especially around bodies of water, certain coastal areas in the south and other unique places. But this is all over the place. And so having this index of suspicion is really important. The symptoms I mentioned can, can confuse certain providers. It can be a chronic cough that comes and goes. It can be a cough 
full of mucus production. Some people will cough up blood, but this does not happen in the majority of patients. We can see chest pain, especially like pleuritic type pain, but less common. Some patients complain of fatigue, which can be very severe, weight loss, chills, some night sweats, occasionally fever, but there can be a constellation of, of different types of symptoms that can confuse providers at times. We also have historically thought that this occurs, this disease occurs in two types of people, but we're understanding there's considerable overlap in these populations. Uh, the first is the older male smoker that can be tall and thin, but can have cavitary type lesions and is associated with a worsening prognosis and higher mortality and can be rapidly progressive. That does not mean that women cannot present with this as well. The other phenotype is more of the older female, the classic Lady Windermere syndrome, which can present with scoliosis. These um, patients are often thin, have pectus deformities, and they can present with mid-lung infiltrates with associated bronchiectasis or dilated floppy bronchial tubes. Um, and these can be slowly progressive, but some progress faster than others. I just want to point out, as my dear friend and colleague on the line, Dr. Winthrop has coined, dude Windermere occurs as well. And so again, having this index of suspicion and doing the appropriate workup is really important in all types of patients. Thinking about the host and environmental and organism risk factors, we have a lot of information on this slide, but just thinking about where NTM comes from, this lives in our environment. And so we are all exposed, but different people are exposed to varying degrees. So thinking about these things, thinking about where they come from, and then also thinking about risk factors for why someone might have NTM lung disease. Oftentimes, people have underlying bronchiectasis, but they can have cystic fibrosis, and we still diagnose this in adults. Alpha-1 antitrypsin, emphysema, prior infections, and then we also understand that aspiration or GERD can be associated with these things too. Thinking about how we make the diagnosis with sputum culture and understanding that oftentimes it takes patience and time for this to grow in culture, and so this is an important aspect of the disease also. We understand that rates of NTM lung disease increase with age. And I, I think that this is an important slide because we understand that after the age of 60, prevalence increased more than sevenfold among both men and women, um, from 1.7 per 100,000 among persons aged less than 60 to 15 per 100,000 for those older 60 to 69 and 30 per 100,000 over the age of 70. So, um, you know, looking at this, we understand that a the rates increase with age. Um, within the age group of greater than 60, women had a 30% higher prevalence than men. And you can see this in these graphs. And again, this was published by uh, Dr. Winthrop and his team. And we have other data to support this as well. I think it's also important to note that NTM rates are rising in individuals with COPD. And you can see here the incidence rate in blue and the prevalence rate um, in, in, in red here. Um, I think this is multifactorial, but also, again, people are understanding NTM lung disease. They're making the diagnosis more now. And so I think this index of suspicion becomes very important. But NTM is certainly can be common in patients with COPD. This um, slide actually shows the incidence rates by gender, and um, you can see the numbers listed here. 
making the diagnosis. The diagnosis of NTM lung disease has not changed. Our prior guidelines um, back in 2007 um, had the same diagnostic criteria as the 2020 guidelines do. And that's, you have to have a constellation of three things. You need to have symptoms compatible with NTM lung disease. We went over those. I would say cough, fatigue, weight loss are some of the most common. You also need to have characteristic radiographs compatible with NTM lung disease. And this is typically cavities or nodular bronchiectasis with these tree and bud opacities and infiltrates. And then you need to have microbiologic confirmation. So you need to obtain multiple sputums at, or different days, at least over the course of a week. And you need to have at least two positive sputums or one positive culture from a bronchoscopy or a biopsy. Again, the laboratory becomes very important in making the diagnosis and you do have to exhibit some patients as it does take time for these to grow. With that, I wanna go ahead and toss it back to Dr. Winthrop to talk about evidence, clinical evidence with patient factors. You bet, thanks Julie. Uh, I am happy to talk about treatment and the factors that we think about when we think about starting treatment or stopping treatment or man managing adverse events. Um, this is really a, a very shared uh, decision-making uh, area of medicine. Uh, there isn't often a right answer about when to treat or uh, sometimes even how to treat, uh, but we do have guidelines and we are all supposed to kind of follow them uh, or we should be following them to start most people the right way on therapy. Um, but, but we often run into problems and we often have to think about how to adjust things. So, you know, some of the factors up front I think about uh, in terms of when to start someone on treatment are, you know, whether or not they have risk factors for progression. Uh, sometimes you have an older scan and you get a new scan, you can see they've progressed a lot in the last six months. Well, then that's maybe a no-brainer. You know they're progressing. A lot of people just kind of hang out with low, um, you know, low burden of disease for a number of months or years before they progress or become more symptomatic. So oftentimes we're, we're really just kind of waiting to decide uh, whether we should start treatment. Some of the um, things to consider further as such, you know, 10 or 15% of people will spontaneously clear their sputum. So uh, a lot of times people who have low or, or moderate disease burden and are not very symptomatic, you may just work on a number of things, which I'll go into in the, in the further slides before you pull the trigger on antibiotic therapy. Now, uh, characteristics of, of patients who might clear their sputum, of course, the healthier they are, the higher their BMI, you know, in terms of having a normal BMI, uh, they have a low bacillary burden, uh, i.e. their sputum uh, AFB smears negative. Um, they have bronchiectatic disease, not cavitary disease. I mean, these are the people that may, may be more likely to clear their sputum on their own. But I, I think more of the risk factors on the other side, you know, what are the risk factors this person is going to progress and not handle their infection? You know, certainly low BMI, anyone with a cavity, anyone with a cavity needs to start therapy right away. Uh, and then, you know, of course, how symptomatic is the patient? And that drives a lot of our decision-making around treatment start. Uh, if they're symptomatic, uh, then, there's, then there's rationale for starting treatment and, and that we want to make the patient feel better. Uh, and then also consideration around immunosuppression um, and other, you know, potential comorbidities might drive uh, your decision to uh, start someone on therapy. So, as I said before, this is really not like most other infectious diseases where, you know, someone shows up with a urinary tract infection, you just treat it. I mean, that's what we do. With the bacteria in the urine, you need to clear it out. Uh, here you have a non-sterile surface. It's an airway. It has lots of different uh, bacteria 
and fungi sometimes uh, on its surface. Uh, and sometimes these bugs get out of control and cause invasive infections. So uh, finding that time to treat uh, sometimes is difficult with people who have low burden of disease and, and very few symptoms. So this is something where we really sit and talk with the patient. We talk about uh, the likelihood for needing multiple medications for an extended length of time, uh, strategies for handling potential adverse events, uh, and the two bullet points on the bottom of the slide really to me are the most important. And when I first make the diagnosis and so on, I usually spend the first three months doing this, focusing on improving aerobic exercise, pulmonary hygiene, and airway clinic clearance. A lot of patients can manage a low burden infection alone with those strategies. If they've already maxed out on those things, then you're, you're you know, closer to needing uh, to start antimicrobial therapy. So those are the things we really spend the first few months uh, talking about and doing before we progress to starting antibiotics. Um, I do rely on members of our interprofessional team. I wish I had more access to these things. I think Julie has more of this at Texas. Uh, but, you know, our pharmacists, our nurses, our NPs and PAs can be very helpful, particularly around monitoring and assisting with uh, treatment adherence or medication compliance, monitoring adverse events, um, checking drug-drug interactions, et cetera, and, and just providing counsel and, and really adverse event troubleshooting for patients. Uh, that's something that I find invaluable that, that those around me can, can help do. In terms of guideline-based therapy, I'm going to show you the guideline-based therapy uh, in a second. I will show you this data first. It was just uh, published in Clinical Infectious Diseases. From um, Dr. Jen Ku, who is someone who uh, used to work with me and, and still works with me uh, from afar, but I hope to get her back one day. But this was a great study looking at uh, Medicare data, uh, 9,100 plus Medicare recipients. Now, this data was, was several years old. I think the, the end point of the data was 2016, if I remember correctly. So maybe things have gotten better since then. But up until that time, uh, we found when we, we saw people in the database who were diagnosed with NTM uh, and started treatment, 51% of them started the guideline-based therapy. And that guideline-based therapy is a macrolide, a thamatol, and a rifamycin. Again, I'll get into it in a second on the next slide. But so what surprised us was only half the patients who were starting the therapy were starting the recommended therapy. And then even more surprising, at six months, only 41% of those were still on the guideline-based therapy. Uh, and you can see it drop off severely at 12 months and eight, 18 months. So what we don't know yet is why patients are discontinuing therapy uh, so uh, quickly. Uh, sometimes it's just the individual drug and not the whole regimen. Uh, and we presume it's due to adverse events, but we need to look more uh, into this. Uh, and tolerability is certainly uh, probably an issue. Um, I don't know, Julie, what do you think? What do you see in your practice or along these lines? Are people bouncing off, you know, on and off their, their rifampin or their thamsol or, or how do you see it? Yeah. I mean, Kevin, I know, I'm sure you see the same thing. I see a lot of people referred to my clinic that have been on what I would consider to be just some crazy regimens, you know, but patients can't tolerate some things. I get that. Um, but I'm also still shocked. I, I We've got to point out that NTM treatment, especially MAC treatment, this is a multi-drug regimen, period. You can't treat this with one drug and you can't look at the susceptibilities and say, oh, it's susceptible to um, X, Y, or Z, and then just start that drug alone. Remember, the macrolide and amikacin are the two most important drugs um, when you're looking at the susceptibilities, but you've got to be on more than one drug. 
Yeah, and I and I think I'm glad you brought that up because my speculation when I looked at that data with Jen before we uh, published it was, you know, a lot of and I get these phone calls all the time. And I'm sure you do too. Like people get the susceptibility report and they say, oh, it's resistant to thamsol or oh, it's resistant to rifampin, so they won't use it. Um, and what people don't know is that that doesn't matter. <laughs> that, that actually, thamsol and rifampin still work, and what they do is they protect the macrolide somehow, um, magically, I guess. But but even though they may not have great activity alone, in combination, uh, they are protecting the macrolide, and that's what they're there for is really to to prevent macrolide resistance. And I'll point out one more thing, Kevin. Just if a take home is people that are experts in this field do not use a lot of quinolones to treat it. Um, it's, it's a, it's a drug we use when other things don't work, if people are intolerant as a last resort. So it's not a drug that we would pair ever pair with a macrolide by itself. Yeah. It's really not like TB. And I think that's the reflexive thing here is, oh, it's a mycobacterium like TB. I'll throw moxie at it or leviquin at it. But, uh, very few of the MAC isolates in the country are actually, uh, susceptible to those drugs. Um, and you know, very few obsesses. So, uh, I think that's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, well, let's move on to the guideline-based therapy because we've been talking around it, but here it is on a slide. Um, and as Julie pointed out, really the only susceptibilities you care about is the macrolide and the amicacin, and really just the amicacin if you're going to need to use it. You don't need to use it in most patients right off the bat. You might need to use it later. Um, in terms of the treatment algorithm, you can see there, if they're macrolide sensitive, then you go, yes, you go to the left on the slide. And and you go down, if they have cavities, they get three drugs, azithromycin, rifampin, and ethambitol, but they also get amicacin uh, intravenously if possible. I mean, we use this in everybody with cavitary disease unless it's not possible. If they lack cavitary disease, you can either do three times a week or daily uh, azithromycin, rifampin, and ethambitol. So uh, azithromycin is the macrolide of choice. You can also use clorithromycin, but azithromycin seems to be better tolerated than clorithromycin. So that's why we favored it in the guidelines. Uh, the same thing is true of rifampin and rifibutin. Rifampin is favored because it's better tolerated than uh, rifibutin. You can see on the right side of the slide, if some, someone's macrolide resistant, kind of all things are, are um are off. So if they lack macrolide sensitivity, then you still think about using rifampin and ethambitol, but you've got to get creative and add other drugs. Clofazamine is an option. We just talked about the quinolones as not being great options, but if you don't have other options, that, that might be what you turn to. Uh, you certainly would turn to IV amicacin. You can think about surgery if needed. Um, and then there's some exotics, linezolid, tadezolid, and Bidaquin. Um, and I, I do have a number of patients on these who have uh, drug-resistant or macrolide-resistant uh, disease. But, but a lot of these patients, they, they don't have great choices. I don't know, Julie, if you want to add anything to that. I think it's well said. If they're macrolide-resistant, sometimes you just have to call in, call, phone a friend, call for help. <laughs> I send them all to Texas. <laughs> Um, listen, patient follow-up after MAC lung disease therapy. So we, we treat for 12 to 18 months generally. So our goal is to treat 12 months post-culture conversion. Most people convert their culture negative in the first six months of therapy. So that's where you end up in this 12 to 18 month range. Um, after you stop, then, um, you know, you, you can either tell them never to come back or you can be smart and tell them to keep coming back. Um, after they stop therapy. So, so during therapy, actually this slide's a mix of things here. During therapy, 
We typically check uh, labs every one or two months. That's a CBC and a comprehensive chemistry. If they're on thyroid replacement, I'll also check their TSH because rifampin will interact with their levothyroxine. Um, we tend to see them clinically every two to three months. We tried to get uh, microbiologic analysis done, you know, AFB sputum done every one to two months while they're on treatment, at least until they turn negative, and then probably less frequently after that. I shoot a, a chest CT on everyone uh, three to six months after starting treatment just to make sure they're going the right way. And then we typically do one at the end of therapy to take a snapshot uh, at the end of therapy for future, for future use. And then um, after treatment, uh, and it's not on the slide, but after treatment, I would just say there is need for ongoing disease surveillance because many of these people will relapse or be reinfected from the environment. So I tend to see these people back still every four months, uh, even after they've stopped their therapy, um, sometimes more frequent, sometimes less frequent, depends on what their lungs look like and how, how they are symptomatically. But post-treatment surveillance for recrudescent infection, I think, is important. Um, Failure of culture conversion. So I, I just told you most patients will convert their sputum to negative in the first six months. However, about 15 to 25%, something like that, depending on which case series you choose, uh, they will not and they will remain positive. And these are patients we, we deem as being a refractory. They're refractory to standard guideline-based therapy. So at six months, they should be negative, but they're not negative yet. So the guidelines that uh, were recently released, uh, we in those guidelines, we recommend adding uh, a, a specific treatment to those individuals to enhance the, the chance that they're going to convert their culture to negative. And this is ALICE, or amicacin liposome inhalation suspension. And it's basically uh, IV amicacin. It's 590 milligrams of amicacin, and it's encapsulated in the liposome for inhalational de delivery. And it has its own special little nebulizer. That liposome allows uh, the amicacin to penetrate airway biofilm and also end up intracellularly in alveolar macrophages. These are places where, both of those places are where MAC and other NTM can hide out. So this does bring the amicacin closer to those organisms. And with that, you'd expect increased killing. And that's what we've seen clinically. And this was the pivotal trial that led to uh, Alice being um, approved for uh, refractory disease. And these are individuals who had refractory disease that came into the trial. Half were kept on GBT alone, or I should say one third were kept on GBT alone. And the other, it was a two to one randomization. The other two thirds got Alice on top of their guideline-based therapy. And you can see by the end of month six, and these are people who are converted the end of month six, which meant they had to start converting at least by month four because the definition of conversion was three negative monthly cultures in a row. But you can see we got 29% of patients to convert, so about 30% converted versus uh, nine who converted on the background guideline-based therapy. So it did improve uh, the chance that these patients would convert. And, uh, and again, this is now the recommended additional therapy at that time point. And of the patients who converted, what was nice to see in the ALICE arm, 63% of them on the left-hand side of the slide there, 63% continued to maintain their conversion all the way to the end of the study, whereas only 30% of the patients in the guideline-based therapy who converted stayed converted. And then on the right-hand side of the slide, you can see the bars representing those who stopped treatment at the end who are still negative, who then, when we reassess them three months later off of all treatment, 
were still negative. And you can see of the Alice group, the people that stayed negative to the end, they stayed negative three months after therapy, all of them. And of the three people in the GBT group, they all uh, actually recrudesced and had positive culture. So there was evidence here that it improved culture conversion and improved sustainability and durability of culture conversion, even at least with a three-month window after a stopping treatment. So with that, I'll, I'll mention some of the common adverse events. And Julie, I'm going to ask you to weigh in here on, on what to do about them. One thing we see in the trial, in the phase three trials, we see it in clinical practice too, is dysphonia. Uh, some patients have increased cough uh, and dyspnea, just airway reactivity. The kinds of things we see with a lot of inhaled antibiotics, we definitely see with this uh, inhaled antibiotic. Uh, that a, a sense that there may be an increased risk of tinnitus, you can see 7.6% with the ALICE group as compared to 0.9% in the non-ALICE group. Uh, we did me measure serial audiograms. We did not see a decrement in hearing capacity at all between the two groups, which was reassuring, but we do see this potential um, uh, side effect of tinnitus. Otherwise, uh, much of these side effects were non-serious and they were centered around airway um, reactivity and um, hypersensitivity. Um, and, and before we get there, well, actually, Julie, I'm going to let you weigh in on the, in a couple slides because let me get through the Alice stuff here because I wanted to point out a couple, two more things. We, we did do an open label extension trial too, which was really nice. We took patients with refractory disease from that phase three trial and uh, if they didn't convert their culture and they were they were still net, they were still positive at month six, we basically kept the group on Alice. We kept them on Alice, and the people who hadn't been on Alice before, i.e., they were in the comparison group that was just GBT alone, we swapped them over to Alice, and we we went to see what would happen. And what was cool is the people that swapped over to Alice. So these were people who were culture positive at month six, but they hadn't been on Alice yet. When they swapped over to Alice. By month 10, about a third of them were uh, culture negative. They had converted their culture. So we saw in that group exactly what we saw in the overall study starting at time zero. And if you looked at the patients uh, who actually started on ALICE and they were still culture positive at month six, and they stayed on their ALICE, they stayed in the trial, we actually got a few more of them to convert. We got 13.7% of those individuals to additionally convert. So there may be some rationale for leaving someone on ALICE even past you know a six month time period if they haven't converted yet on it because we're still probably going to get some people to convert. Um, and then lastly, a, a mention about uh, about uh, Alice. Some new data. This was just presented at American Thoracic Society conference. Uh, this was looking at individuals from Medicare and commercial uh, insurance plans. It was looking at just overall hospitalizations in the six months before they started Alice and then the six months, comparing that to, to six months or, or other time periods after Alice start. And as compared to the six months before Alice start, you can see that uh, patients were um, less likely to be hospitalized. So 28% to 43% uh, fewer patients had respiratory-related hospitalizations during and after Alice start. Uh, and again, the respiratory-related hospitalizations decreased uh, quite a bit by 40 to 44% after Alice initiation and follow-up. So um, I don't know what this means other than probably the Alice might help diminish other bronchiectasis exacerbations. Maybe the amicacin is active against other things in their airway. Uh, it also may be that you know they're starting this and their max getting better, and so they have fewer just overall respiratory events um, on their own. Um, 
adverse events associated with guideline-based therapy. Okay, so Julie, let's let's talk adverse events. These are some of the common ones. What what are your thoughts? How do you troubleshoot some of these things with GBT? And then we'll talk about Alice on the next slide. I think it's just thanks, Kevin. I think it's really important to note that patients have side effects on these medicines, and you often have to change meds. Um, so you know, some people do not end up on the same regimen that you start. Uh, a lot of times I hear about nausea, especially with the macrolides. Sometimes you can take the medication at night and they can sleep through the nausea. If they have a rash on clarithromycin, doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a rash on azithromycin. So you just have to troubleshoot some of this stuff. Um, the things listed are things you should familiarize yourself with and definitely, you know, be on the lookout. Yeah. You know, in terms of QT prolongation, I don't usually check EKGs unless they're on multiple uh, QT prolongating agents. Uh, and after a few of them, I'll stop checking as long as they're they're okay. Um, optic neuritis, I mean, I, I think it's rare, but we should just remind people, anyone on Thamatol, they should be warned of vision change or report it. Uh, we do color vision monitoring every month. Uh, and when they come in, we check their vision every three months. But in general, I think, you know, most patients, if you, if you tell them about vision changes, they're pretty, um, these are things that they can recognize and they can report to you immediately. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm not sure what else to say. Hearing loss is a big deal with IV amicacin. It's not with inhaled amicacin. Um, it is probably an issue with long-term azithromycin use, but I, I'm not sure what to do about a lot of these patients because they need to be on their azithromycin. So, um, it's something that's hard to, uh, it's something to talk to the patient about and make decisions about. Um, you know, in terms of other adverse events, particularly the ALICE, um, what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, helping someone tolerate Alice uh, over time? Yeah, so the, I think first thing is important to set the, set the stage. Dysphonia and cough, like you mentioned, are common. I would say the majority of patients experience some change. So, uh, you know, just making sure they understand this can be normal is really important. I think it's also important to, you know, sometimes even just taking a break for a day or two can help. Um, in these situations, some people say hop tea and other things help. I, I don't know that there's any necessary data for that, but that that can help some patients. What about you, Kevin? Yeah, I mean, I just think with uh, dysphonia and kind of increased airway reactivity, a lot of that goes away with time. So I often just dose reduce people, you know, have them take it three times a week for a few weeks or months and then gradually, you know, ramp them up. I mean, I and sometimes a bronchodilator uh, can be used before administration that can help. So and, and you know, some of the other things on the slide have to do with GBT here, but um it is true. Probiotics seem to help some people, um, you know, taking the meds all together with ice cream at night. That's why I tell people to do. They seem to like that. Um, you know, if there's <laughs> rashes. people happy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone likes to hear that from their doctor. So um, rashes, you know, I mean, I dealt with two rashes today. I stopped everything. You know, I'm going to go back one by one drug, you know, one drug at a time once the rash abates. So um, these are things that you just get used to doing. Um, and again, the, on the slide too, the, the issue of optic neuritis, which we covered. So, I was going to just mention one other, one other thing, and that is in the study, there were some people that used Alice that had hypersensitivity to pneumonitis. So if someone calls my clinic and they're short of breath, we stop the medication, uh, period. Um, so just keep that in the back of your, back of your mind. Not, not, all, you know, not all things are benign here. But um, the majority of patients, we can get through treatment. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually had two patients like that. Um, and so I actually, I, I check PFTs every six months in patients on Alice. Um, I, and, you know, and again, I, I talked to them just like you did in terms of what to look out for. 
Uh, and of course that happens, you, you withdraw the drug and, you know, sometimes you need to use steroids, things get better, but, but it is possible just like it is with any, I think, inhaled compounds. So, uh, okay. We're at our time limit. So that was fun. But in summary, rates of NTM lung disease are rising, uh, all around the world. Um, diagnosis requires, uh, time. Unfortunately, cultures take time to grow. Uh, they're hard to grow sometimes and it's hard to get sputum from some patients. So it can be frustrating. We're looking for new ways to, to diagnose this entity with, you know, blood based diagnostics or other. Um, a decision to treat is a shared decision as we discussed with patient. Uh, risks and benefits. Uh, there are uh, guidelines out there that recommend uh, a specific guideline-based therapy, uh, as well as therapy uh, with ALICE for patients who fail guideline-based therapy after six months. Uh, and an interprofessional approach, again, is optimal for, for managing these patients. And, and a team can be very helpful here of, of pharmacists and PAs and nurses and whatnot. Uh, and like I said, I wish I had had more of them. Um, so I think that's it. And then troubleshooting adverse events. And uh, we can do some uh, question and answering uh, right now. So uh, I guess let's let's launch into it. Uh, one question, Julie, what are the options for therapy intensification in someone who's failing therapy? Well, um, again, you have to kind of go back to your algorithm. Um, certainly when someone's failing therapy, meaning they're still culture positive despite being on guideline-based therapy, you A, want to make sure you've got the right diagnosis. In other words, if the patient is worsening and you're doing everything you can to make them better, you need to make sure that you're not missing some other diagnosis, um, whether that be you're not adequately treating their COPD, you're not adequately doing um, airway clearance. You need to make sure the patient's taking the medicine. But then you go back to the algorithm and, and figure out if there's something you can do, either maybe add IV amicacin or change the medication to daily. Yeah, and, and I would just add that uh, in making sure you're doing everything right, sometimes I check drug levels to make sure people are absorbing their drugs, and sometimes they're not. It's it's unusual, but it does happen. Uh, and then, of course, getting susceptibilities done on a, a new isolate if you know it's possible they've evolved resistance. Those would be the two things I'd add to that. And then in terms of intensification, I mean, yeah, we kind of touched upon all the drugs on that one slide. Uh, clofazamine. Uh, or IV amicacin or inhaled uh, Alice. I mean, there and then some of the other drugs that we don't necessarily like using, but those are things we throw at people to intensify. Um, so I think with that, uh, we'll sign off and thank you guys for, for joining. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash MNQ860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from INSMED.